Hey folks, Tom here. Before we get into this week's episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast, I wanted to talk to you about voting, not voting for president. We've done that and we won't talk about that very much at all today, but rather voting for the new markers, newsmakers of 2020. We want you to nominate the people, the companies, the products, and the events that really made 2020 memorable. So we have created an online ballot, an online form for you to fill out. We will include it in the podcast notes. We'll post it up on social media. We'll get it out to you as many ways as we can. And we're asking for your input. We will take the information, come up with some finalists, and then send that out to you for another vote. So I hope you'll take just a few minutes to fill out the form. Again, you can find it on the podcast page. You can find it on the mass device story that I will post. And again, we'll share it via social media. So please be part of the selection of 2020's New Markers Newsmakers. All right, you ready for this? Ready. turn that theme music down, Chris. There's Chris Newmarker and Sean Hooley from right. Mass Device. There's just too much excitement this week. I think we need to keep it down and kind of a down low this week, a little little That's quiet it. medtech oasis. What do you think? It's good just to, just to keep it calm. Just think think happy thoughts, paint, paint happy trees, fluffy clouds. That's what we got. Deep breath. Yeah, there's no no shame in uh, you know listening to some uh, you, know, you know watching some Bob Ross or uh, you know even Enya. You know, I mean, no shame in Enya this year. I bet I bet her uh, she's getting extra music sales this year. This is a this might be an Enya year. <laughs> Maybe we'll close up with some Enya. Hope, hopefully, she won't sue us for for using it. She's gonna get called for a lawyer in Ireland. Again. <laughs> <laughs> that is all we need here. To that's, that's that's what shut us down. <laughs> that's right. I do not need Enya on my on my my butt. So, <laughs> but we are rebels here at Device Talks. Anyway, right? Yeah. <laughs> lots of big news this week in the in the device world outside of the uh, the I won't even use the word election. All right, before we get into this week's keynote conversations, I'll talk about our opening keynote in a moment. They're actually mentioned in our uh, New Markers Newsmakers Top 5. Later on, we'll speak with uh, Julian Nikolchev and Oliver Keown. They're from uh, Intuitive Surgical. Sean Cooley, who is joining us, wrote about them last week. Uh, forming a venture fund. It's actually part of a much, much larger uh, effort to expand Intuitive's reach. So uh, it's a very interesting conversation. But now is the time. Now is the, the 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 event that everyone has been waiting for. It's time for New Marcus Newsmakers. It's the highlight of this podcast. But 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 we're going to try to just bring in, bring the energy down a bit. Again, there's a lot of tension this week, so we're going to roll the roll the New Marcus Newsmakers sound. I want everyone to put their head down on their desk or, or lie flat on their office floor, or just just sort of take some deep breaths and just enjoy these soothing sounds of, of the ocean waves. Yeah. Just just bring your energy to a to a new calm level. So. How's that feel, Chris? Oh man, it's great. Oh, wow. So, so are you gonna go get the six pack of Coronas, or should I? Uh, Sean, why don't you go get up the beers? Well, Chris starts off with uh, with item number five. I got a, I got a bag of limes in my fridge. I always get a big bag of Costco limes, so we're good. I just bought limes at the grocery store this morning, so. Let's... All right, we got all the limes we'll need. We're 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 in a calm space now. Bring us number five on the New Markers Newsmakers list. Uh, number five on the list is the uh, is the election. Oh. No, I'm just kidding, Tom. Just we kidding, had man. a th- good thing going, Chris. 
<laughs> Guys, I, I gotta, I gotta go. I can't, can't do that. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> uh, Sean's got a good idea. So, all right, number five on the list. Um, uh, kind of depressing too. Um, <laughs> actually, like the FDA's, uh, you know, like you know, warning, learning laboratory staff and healthcare providers about, you know, like you know, potentials for false positive results for these rapid COVID nineteen antigen tests that we have out there. Um, you know, and, and you know, there's been you know, the test can be very useful for just like quickly trying to figure out what's going on. But, you know, it's 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 already been, you know, known that um, it's already been out there that they, they aren't as accurate as diagnostic tests. And this is just like a little bit uh, more in this area. So it's just unfortunately like another example of uh, just all the, um, you know, the challenges that we're, we, we still have around testing. I know in Minnesota, it's still taking like days to get, uh, get results results and uh, our case counts are ramping up again in the, in the state as well as like the whole upper Midwest. So here we go. So, um, so that was a nice, nice, uh, depressing bit of news. So that's you have any good, good news for us, Chris, any happy news on number four? Hey, we got the most innovative medical device of the year. I mean, that's uh, number four. That's great news. Number four of the list, you know, every year, um, one one thing that gets a lot of uh, clicks on Mass Device is we uh, look at all the nominees for the uh, Prix Galleon USA Awards. These are like uh, some people call them the quote unquote Nobel Prize of MedTech and Pharma. Um, and, you know, we um, do a roundup of the most innovative devices of the year based on which devices got uh, nominated. And uh, now, you know, Prix Galleon has, uh, you know, announced that the top medical technology of the year is uh, Abbott's uh, MitraClip system, you know, a minimally invasive transcatheter uh, mitral valve uh, repair system. And this is Tavers, a hot area doing, you know, TMVR, you know, could could be uh, could be even bigger. There's a huge need to uh, for mitral valve repair. And this is hopefully a really good uh, technology for uh, especially like older people, people who just really can't um, can't have their chest cracked open can't have open heart surgery so you know like uh, prick scallion is kind of uh pointing out uh you know the um, real uh, innovative nature of uh abbott's uh, mitroclip device so that's number four on the list well that's that's really great timing chris because our opening keynote conversation is with neil moat he's the cmo of abbott's structural heart group and uh we'll talk about mitroclip and some other important news from abbott uh in this uh, interview but first let's uh let's listen to this week's two minute detox brought to you by explorer surgical Welcome to our new podcast feature, The Two-Minute Detox. Get it? Device talks, detox. Anyway, we created this segment to give medtech companies the opportunity to use our platform to tell their own stories in short two-minute chapters. Run an installment in each of our four episodes coming up so we can bring you even more important medtech stories in this podcast. This is sponsored content, but it's important content. I know you'll enjoy it. I'm thrilled that our first detalker is Jennifer Freed, the CEO of Explorer Surgical. Now let's learn why Jennifer Freed co-founded Explorer Surgical with Dr. Alex Langerman, the company's chief medical officer. The two met while Dr. Langerman led the Operative Performance Research Institute at the University of Chicago. And it was there that Dr. Langerman shared the problems he was facing in ensuring that ORs run smoothly. What he said was 50% of the time, I'm going to come into the room, I'll have my favorite rep, 
my normal scrub, my normal circulator. I'm doing one of the cases I do all the time and everything is coordinated perfectly. It's like you have a conductor there in this perfect orchestra of events. However, the other half of the time I come in and I may have a new rep or my rep can't be there in person or I have a new tech and I'd find myself with my patient open on the table, reaching out my hand, only to discover that not only did the team not have what I needed ready for me, but it wasn't even in the room. So everybody is sitting there twiddling their thumbs while we send somebody out of the room, down the hall to another floor to get the item that I need. When I heard this, I didn't believe Alex. It didn't make sense to me that you would have things like this happening because of workflow problems in an area as critical as surgery. And so I became just deeply invested in working with him to try to create a solution, which is where we came up with having a digital playbook to have best practices available for the team, no matter who was in the room. And right now we've seen that problem magnified even more because of travel restrictions around COVID, access restrictions to hospitals. It's much harder to have your ideal person in the room than it was a year ago. I hope you enjoyed that chapter in Explorer Surgical Story. Tune in to next week's Device Talks Weekly to hear how the company will differentiate itself in an increasingly crowded field. This opening keynote conversation is brought to you by Device Talks Tuesdays. Join us at 4 p.m. this Tuesday to hear from our friends at Stress Engineering about the importance of digital solutions for the design and manufacturing of medical devices. Go to devicetalks.com for more information. Well, Neil Moat, welcome to the podcast. Tom, thank you very much for uh, inviting me. Excited to be here. We have a lot to talk about. Abbott's been making some news lately, but uh, I'd love to find out a little bit more about your background. You've only joined Abbott and sort of the corporate side of things recently, correct? You're a, a physician and uh, had been working till just a few years uh, as a practicing physician? Yes, yeah, so Tom, as, as you can probably tell by my accent, I'm not from the US. So I was a practicing physician in, um, in London, in England. I didn't want to say anything, but yes, I did notice it's a kind of weird accent, but um, um, so uh, I came from a cardiac surgical background, um, really repairing heart valves, but then got into the transcatheter intervention world about 12 years ago um, uh, and moved to Abbott uh, two years ago. So moved from clinical practice to industry and from London to Northern California. So it was quite an exciting time. That's, that is exciting. So what is it, uh, where do you fall in uh, in Abbott's corporate structure and what are your duties there? I, I think that um, it's an exciting role. I, I, I lead a team of um, medical affairs uh, and we, we, we kind of interact with almost all parts of the business unit internally from regulatory affairs to clinical to even to legal to business development, R&D. So we, we kind of provide medical input uh, and expertise to to help and support all of these divisions. And then we have externally facing roles where we interact with healthcare professionals, regulatory bodies, notified bodies, uh, even the media on occasion. So it's, it's a kind of diverse role. We're glad to have you. So you're also, I imagine, interacting with, uh, with physicians, walking them through new tools and technologies. Uh, I'm curious, you were in, in the UK 
previously now you're dealing working primarily in the U.S. when you're when you're under normal circumstances. Has that uh, uh, any difference in, in talking with physicians in, in one continent versus the other, or is it a, a universal language? I I think it's a it's a mixture. I mean, there is a universal language. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of how. Physicians and healthcare professionals talk. Obviously, Abbott is a is a global business, so it's not just yes. the UK and um, the US. It's obviously the whole of Europe, Asia Pacific, Latin America. You know, so it's a it's a, it's you can imagine across that global geography there are there are slight differences to healthcare um, and also healthcare professionals. Uh, not not surprisingly, but there's there's an underlying uh, trait of wanting to do the best for patients. And, um, you know, and I think one of the things, mm-hmm. you know, when I when I moved to Abbott was I spent a lot of time talking to a lot of senior people in Abbott and the Abbott mission is to um, to, to deliver better life through better health. And I think that, that, that rang true with me as a physician. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that rings true across healthcare professionals worldwide. That's what we're all trying to do. You know, we, we achieve that in different ways, but... That's one of the reasons why I felt comfortable moving to uh, to Abbott. So let's talk a bit about your, your products. You had some news this week involving the MitraClip. Uh, received the 2020 Prix Galleon USA Award. Uh, I don't know how involved you were in sort of that submission or that process in, in the news in general, but what is that? What, what was your takeaway from winning that award? Obviously, it's very prestigious. And uh, what does it mean? How, how does it help you do your job better going forward? Well, I, I think it's always exciting and rewarding to receive this kind of recognition. Um, I, I, and I think with MitraClip, which is a you know a minimally invasive transcatheter technology to repair leaking mitral valves, um, uh, this has been in clinical practice for about 16 years with over 100,000 implants. And it, it really is, um, I, 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 in my clinical practice, I was involved in, in um, using this technology um, back in the UK. And it's uh, it is a very safe, um, very minimally invasive. The patients usually go home within a day or two of the procedure, rather than having to have open heart surgery to deal with their their mitral valve problems. Um, I think the um, the Galen Foundation and the Pre Galen Awards, I, I believe, um, you know, they're considered as as industries equivalent to the Oscars right. in the in the biopharmaceutical and medical technology world. Um, you know, I really have played a, a tiny role in this. I mean, there's so many people um, in Abbott and um, in, in Eval who Abbott acquired to uh, to acquire uh, the MitraClip technology who've, who's, who have done this over the last 16 years or, uh, or so. But um, it's a great honour. Uh, and I, I think it's... It just recognises the um, the excellence of that innovation and how it's um, allowed people to live be- lead better lives. Talk about the the, the importance of the MitraClip and, and sort of what sort of evolutionary step is it is it in treating uh, heart disease? Yeah, so so the concept behind the MitraClip was in in fact a surgical procedure um, developed by Ottavio Alfieri in Milan. In Italy, and he would stitch the two leaf. The mitral valve has got two leaflets. The word mitral comes from a bishop's mitre, so the valve has resembled in some ways a bishop's oh. mitre. And the Alfieri manoeuvre was to stitch the two leaflets together. And 
The, the clip was developed as a minimally, minimally invasive transcatheter technology to allow that to be done through a puncture in the, in the groin rather than open heart surgery. So it's mimicking a, mm. mimicking a surgical procedure. Um, the, 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 the real advance to it is, is that minimally invasive transcatheter approach, which minimizes the, the stress and trauma for the patient allows the patient a much more rapid recovery, uh, allows them to go home quickly, but perhaps more importantly, um, allows them to get back to work, to their social activities, to act normal activities of daily living, much faster than having the prior conventional surgical approach. And over the years, it's, uh, we, you know, we have many clinical trials showing its dramatic effect on improving the quality of life for the patients with MitraClip. I ask this question in every interview, but how has the past six months uh, dealing with COVID impacted the, uh, I mean, we can get the numbers from the quarterly reports, but just from your perspective, how, uh, how has COVID-19 impacted the, 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 the people who sought treatment with the, with the MitraClip? Have you seen a, a drop as a result, or is this, this simply the kind of procedure that, that cannot wait? I think it's difficult to be precise about that. In, in some patients, the procedure cannot wait. They're in hospital. They are you know, acutely ill, and, and they need the procedure within hours or days. There are, there are some where it's more um, elective. Um, I, I think the effect of COVID on healthcare has been dramatic, obviously. Um, not just care of patients who acquire the infection, but the, the effect of the pandemic on the provision of healthcare for non-infective, non-COVID issues. And I, I think I'm sure you're aware that there's a lot of data there that um, the provision of other aspects of health, healthcare has been um, affected um, by this. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the cardiovascular field, there's clear evidence that patients who are, have acute coronary syndromes, um, unstable angina, uh, myocardial you know, heart attacks, myocardial infarctions, are not, are not going to hospital to, um, uh, fast enough to get care for those conditions. Um, and so there's a, there's, a, there's a knock-on effect from COVID, which is perhaps not talked about very much, and that is it's, it's affecting healthcare for patients with, you know, in the field that I'm involved with, patients with structural heart conditions, patients with valvular heart disease are maybe not receiving the treatment as rapidly as they, they should be. And the other impact is that we've got good evidence that patients are afraid, frightened, not very keen, whatever word you want to put on it, to go to major healthcare facilities to have in investigations or in, in, uh, interventions. Um, there's certainly a level of, of um, them being uncomfortable. Well, let's move over to the, uh, the AFib side of things. I know you had some news there recently. Can you bring us up to date on any clinical trials and, and new products there? Yes, of course. Um, I, I, I think the, there's a lot of interest in the atrial fibrillation space, as you probably know. Um, when the heart goes into atrial fibrillation, one gets stasis in the left atrial appendage, which is like a little cul-de-sac or a, um, a little nuke or cranny in the left atrial append- in the left atrium. And when the um, atrium goes into atrial fibrillation, you start to lose the normal pattern of flow through the atrium. It leads to stasis in this appendage, 
and that can lead to blood clot formation. Those clots can then move to the brain and give patients stroke. So that's the, that's the underlying um, uh, clinical problem. One can treat that to some extent with blood thinning medications, but certainly in the um, more elderly patients, that comes along with an increased risk of bleeding. So you, you kind of prevent one cause of stroke in preventing the clot formation, but you produce another in terms of bleeding into the brain. So the idea between behind left atrial appendage closure is to close off that appendage so that blood clots can't form within it. Um, the, the, the device that we have is called Amulet. This is part of the Amplatza line, uh, which is a, a whole series of products used to basically close holes or close defects uh, in the heart, actually generated by a physician uh, called Kurt Amplatz, who um, was an amazing uh, individual who unfortunately passed away a, a few months ago in his, his 90s, but he was still actively researching in his own in own lab, in his own lab, almost to the, almost to the last few months of his his life. So he's had an incredible impact on amazing uh, on healthcare in this space. The amulet device is has been improved approved in Europe for several years and is the market leading device for left atrial appendage closure in in Europe, um, and has a. Um, a, a nice mechanism of a, a mechanism action with a with a disc which cl- helps you close off the origin or the ostium of the appendage. So an, a nice sort of anatomic way to close off the uh, appendage. Um, the uh, IDE trial with Amulet, um, the enrollment was completed. Uh, the follow-up is um, about to be completed and we hope to submit the PMA to uh, FDA um, later on this year. Um, and we would hope to bring that mm-hmm. product to um, to the United States uh, later next year. And it's very exciting for us. And, and coming from my background in Europe, um, uh, you know, I think it was the it, it was the preferred uh, product for closing the left atrial appendage. So it will be nice to bring that to the uh, to the U.S. market. And as you alluded to, we have another very large uh, clinical trial. Uh, starting called the Catalyst Trial, which is comparing um, left atrial appendage closure to a, a newer generation of anticoagulant drugs, the NOAC. Overall, what are some of the, the challenges you uh, you face going forward? I mean, we're all, all looking at a global pandemic, and that's a challenge for all of us. How is that uniquely impacting you? And, and maybe we can actually talk about something that isn't related to a pandemic and uh, can speak to some of the challenges and opportunities you're uh, you're you're facing and, and, and working toward resolving. Well, maybe maybe if we start without the pandemic, because I mean the pandemic really is important. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Important, but, you know, I, I hope that life will exist beyond the pandemic. Um, we'll put the pandemic aside. Let's focus on non-pandemic. I think that the challenges in structural heart disease is. Um, Many of the conditions in structural heart disease are degenerative. What that means is they're a condition of that, that increases in um, frequency uh, the older the, that you get. So particular valvular mm-hmm. heart disease um, is, is much more prevalent in the older population. And uh, what's happening um, with the world's population is that the demographics are changing quite dramatically. And the, the projections are... Um, that the number between now and 2050, the number of patients over the age of 60 will double from about 1 billion now to about 2 billion. 
then wow. and the number of patients over the age of 80 will treble by 2050. And you know, so so there's a, there's a challenge. How how a healthcare system is going to cope with this uh, dramatically increased prevalence of structural heart disease in 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 these populations? I'll be in that group. Yeah, well, I I hope I hope to be in that group. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you are as well. <laughs> so that's that's a, a a challenge, and I think what we're what we're trying to do with you know within Abbott is look to develop innovative solutions to address that, that clinical need. And what has happened in recent years and will continue to happen is uh, imaging modalities have changed dramatically that allow us to image structural heart disease and not just image it, but do imaging during the intervention. So we're able to guide novel interventions uh, by innovative in- imaging to improve and increase the number of types of procedures that we can do in this minimally invasive transcatheter way. I, I think that that is one of the ways of trying to uh, address that challenge of, of, of structural heart disease moving forward. So it's going to be it's going to be a very exciting uh, area over the next five, 10, 15 years. You know, the pandemic is interesting. Just to t- touch back, back on it. Uh, briefly, because it, it clearly is changing the way currently that healthcare is provided. Um, there's a lot more virtual care, a lot more telemedicine. Um, at Abbott, we're intimately involved in looking at remote technologies or virtual technologies for for training, for mm-hmm. supporting procedures. You know, so rather than proctors, be they Abbott employees or other healthcare professionals. Traveling to support cases, we're starting to support those using various platforms to allow them to be done uh, remotely with multi-channel, um, uh, multi-channel support with, with mm-hmm. various imaging being uh, supported online and very good audio communication between the virtual person and the operator. So, so that's a that's a big change that's actively happening, and I think even. Beyond the pandemic, I don't think healthcare will ever quite go back to the way it was before. I think remote vir- remote monitoring, remote education, remote monitoring, um, it won't all be that, but th- things will never go back completely to the way they were before. And just to follow up, this is a final question. Uh, with the remote monitoring, are you developing an internal platform for that, or are you working with one of the many smaller companies out there trying to... Uh to build those connections? At the, at the moment, we're, with, we're working with um, a number of um, smaller companies mm-hmm. uh, to use the technologies that they've had in development for, for a while. I can't predict what the future would be with, within Abbott about whether they would become part of Abbott or we would develop our own. But at the, at the moment, uh, we're working with other companies to, to deliver um, these remote, um, certainly the remote proctoring. We do have... Um, Outside the structural heart division within Abbott, we do have remote monitoring capabilities already with some of our pacemakers, uh, defibrillators, um, a device called CardioMEMS, which can remote, which, which monitors pulmonary artery pressure. So we do have internal platforms um, established prior to the pandemic. But this this remote proctoring is is we're working with external providers to to do that in the in the short term. Excellent. Well, it is a, an interesting space and uh, thank you for uh, updating us on that and on your, your entire program. It's great to connect with you and uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast.
My pleasure. Nice to meet you. Nice to talk to you. All right, and we're back. Chris Newmarker, we're on number three on the Newmarker's Newsmakers list. What do you got? Hey, the news was uh, earnings out of Coloplast. This is the Danish uh, medical device giant. Uh, and actually, their U.S. headquarters is right here where I'm based in Minneapolis. But uh, they were reporting this week that they were uh, able to boost their annual earnings, even as the COVID-19 pandemic held down sales. It just sounds like they were you know, very diligent on you know, trying to uh, you know, control costs at the same time that they're, you know, they say, hey, we're still putting Put money in innovation. We're still trying to, you know, do stuff for the uh, the future. So they were able to, you know, boost their annual earnings, and you know, they're saying that they're expecting their, uh, you know, the revenue growth uh, to accelerate some, you know, next year. So they're looking at a, a better 2021. Uh, you know, it's interesting. We are just in the thick of uh, earnings season right now, and so that's why we got. Uh, that's a big reason why we got Sean on here. Uh, you've just been cranking out the earnings story, Sean. It's it's really great. I mean, having fun doing it too. Woo-hoo. I mean, it is. I mean, it can be really interesting to like look at those numbers and see like, I mean, how are these companies, you know, digging themselves out of this recession and the pandemic? I mean, what, what are some big, uh, you know, standouts for you right now? Yeah, I would say that uh, Hologic's earnings, you know, it's interesting to kind of keep tabs on the uh, companies that are heavily involved in COVID-19 testing, totally. uh, therapeutics, things like that, because their outlooks have all changed dramatically. And one of the things that stuck out from Hologic was that they brought in, uh, nearly $820 million in their diagnostic segment alone, which year over year from this quarter, the fourth quarter last year is a 375.8% increase. Wow. So, um, that's just, that all goes down. Yeah. It all goes down to their, uh, assays and their, um, their, uh, the Panther and Panther fusion systems that, analyze the the COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 tests. And I I think that uh, is a a sign of how those companies are doing for the most part, the the ones that are producing There's so much, so much demand for those tests right now. I mean, it's just... And especially Hologics received definitely a few of those uh, government contracts for them too, I think. So they've, they've been definitely one of the top performers in that respect. Yeah, really. So that's kind of like, uh, I mean, it's... It's unfor- it's unfortunately happening because we got a pandemic. Um, but yeah, I guess I guess it's a bright spot for some medical device companies that you know they they actually are playing a really important role right now, trying to you know fight um, you know fight fight this coronavirus. So yeah, that's really interesting. Well, and then on the, on the flip side, you got Stryker, which is an orthopedic implant company, yeah. which basically you know had to deal with not being able to do anything because nobody was having uh, elective procedures or things like that. Um, but the street projections for their earnings per share was about $1.40, $1.41. And they brought in uh, $2.14 per share. So 73 cents ahead of the projections. And I just thought, especially for a company that's dealing with wow. quite a, a difficult break, I guess, if you, you're looking at you know other com- com- companies taking advantage of of what's in front of them. Strikers had to really claw back for that. So uh, I, th- I think that's a decent performance from, from a big company there. Yeah. You know, they're the world's largest orthopedic device company. And, and one thing that's just been really um, impressive about them amid the pandemic, I've, I've thought is that, I mean, these Mako robots, I mean, they've 
I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the most recent earnings report said, but I know through the year they've been they've been doing they've been selling these things still. I mean, it's you know, and it's uh, it's definitely you know something that's uh, kind of changed the game in the space. You know that they have these robotic systems and everything packaged around them. So yeah, uh, a lot of pressure on the on the big cap companies, the companies trying to sell large capital items. So totally. we'll, we'll talk about that a bit next week, actually, on the podcast. But uh, but that's great. And I think we'll hear from Stryker a little bit on further down the list. But uh, any other interesting reports, uh, earning reports there, Sean? Yeah, I thought one of the ones that really stuck out was uh, Inspire Medical Systems, which is Minneapolis-based mm-hmm. near you. Chris, and, uh, Here we go. And they, you know, it's a sleep apnea uh, treatment developer. So, you know, they've companies like you think of ResMed, they were sending, you know, sleep apnea machines, just anything that would help with the uh, ventilator right. needs early in the pandemic. Well, Inspire Medical System, they had a 24.2% bump in the markets after uh, releasing their earnings. Wow. They, they raised their revenue guidance, too, by more than uh, $20 million. And even though they posted losses, they still beat the street by $0.33 cents on EPS and a total of $13.3 million on revenues. So they... Even with the losses, they posted a good quarter, and the the markets responded in kind. Well, they, I mean, they, they do have an they have an alternative device for sleep apnea that I believe involves an implant and a, and 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 a device that stimulates and, and keeps the the mouth open, the passageway open to to allow people to breathe more easily when they sleep. Which is kind of interesting that you would think this would be the kind of care that people would put off if they were going to stay away from medical care. This is apnea is of course is a critical disease, but it's not something that someone's going to rush themselves to a physician. So it's interesting they've been able to make to see such growth at this time when we were just talking about Stryker and their elective surgeries and orthopedics. See that they've seen the decline or many other electives have seen the decline, but they seem to have uh, found a way to keep growing, which is great. Yes. Yeah, a technology that's gotten some buzz, yeah. and, you know, so they're very cool. So we're seeing more innovation. It's still continuing on even at every, everything that we see going on. Yes. We all need our sleep and we're finding, finding ways to get it because Lord knows if we don't, then, uh, Things will just get a little more tense, but we don't want to talk about tense or that or that election word. We won't mention it. Chris Newmarker, what is number two on the list? Number two on the list is uh, Massimo is going to acquire, uh, I hope I pronounce this right, Lidco for uh, a little over $40 million. You know, uh, Lidco uh, is a uh, hemodynamic monitoring device maker that's targeting primarily critical care and high-risk uh, patients. So it's like uh, you know, Lidco's uh, equipment, you know, measures metrics including cardiac output, stroke volume, systematic vascular resistance, as well as blood monitoring, intravenous fluid monitoring, and vasoactive support. So I mean, these are just like a lot of uh, you know different uh, you know types of uh, you know like you know extra extra metrics that you know technologies for measuring stuff that. Uh, you know, Masmo is going to you know bring into its uh, wheelhouse with this acquisition. So re- really interesting. And Chris, the number one new markers newsmaker. So number one on the list is uh, is Stryker uh, is uh, set to complete their uh, acquisition of Right Medical um, on November 10th. They uh, cleared cleared some major regulatory hurdles this week. Uh, the uh, you know they got approvals from the U.S. Federal Trade Commission and the U.K. Competition and Markets Authority, um, and they uh, you know they basically uh, proving uh, you know like basically they were able to uh, you know win a, win approval from the uh, antitrust authorities by promising uh, Stryker promised to divest certain assets to uh, to a DGA Global uh, in order to make the deal happen and. Uh, 
you know, as, as I said, Stryker's already the, the world's largest orthopedic device company. This is just going to make uh, Stryker even bigger. So you know, even amid uh, the pandemic, the election, everything, uh, you know, here we have this like huge major um, medical device murder deal going through $4.7 billion. And Stryker is a great lead into our closing keynote conversation. As I mentioned up top, we had an opportunity to speak with uh, Julian Nikolchev and Oliver Kion of Intuitive Surgical's new venture effort and really interesting stuff happening at that robotics company. So let's listen. This closing keynote conversation is brought to you by Mass Device and Medical Design and Outsourcing. Go to massdevice.com and medicaldesignandoutsourcing.com for the latest news, analysis, and trends in the medtech industry. Well, Julian Nikolchev and Oliver Keown, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Good to see you. So, Julian, uh, you and I uh, haven't seen each other for a time. It's great to uh, connect. And uh, I do want to talk about your new venture in a moment, but uh, fill us in on, on what you're doing at, at Intuitive uh, and uh, just bring folks up to speed on your, uh, your medtech background a little bit. Sure. Well, Tom, it's been a while. It's a pleasure to see you. And as as you know, my background uh, is probably uh, more than 30 years of medtech development, of uh, development of new technology. I've been involved in starting a number of companies early on, uh, started at uh, Target Therapeutics and spun out Conceptus out of Target Therapeutics. And after that, started several other companies. And rather than going through each one of them. I've been involved in interventional cardiology, women's healthcare, and uh, most recently, Pivot Medical, which was an orthopedic company. The interesting thing about uh, all these companies is the idea of bringing new technology to the market was always exciting, you know, taking, uh, identifying a clinical need and then bringing a new technology. But there's uh, actually, even though there's different, different clinical entities and areas of involvement, there is a running theme that's been, that I found over the years that's connected all these companies, and that is minimally invasive care. Most of the companies have taken a procedure uh, or a clinical area that has been conducted either openly or one way or another, and I've been involved in bringing technologies that have made that, that procedure less invasive. And uh, if you can deliver a less invasive approach with similar or better outcomes, then everyone wins. You have the patients win, the surgeons win, the hospital wins. Excellent. I want to follow on the minimally invasive theme because it's something we're talking about a lot more lately, which seems odd because it seems like the, also the thing we should be talking about almost all the time. How did you come to uh, to join Intuitive? I've, I've known you as a startup guy. You were at Fraser Healthcare. I was surprised that you uh, you found a home in, in a bigger company. How did that happen? Well, it was an interesting uh, journey, and it wasn't something that was planned. But I, over the years, I've been involved uh, and have done some projects with Intuitive. So I've known Intuitive from the beginning. As a matter of fact, when I was starting Conceptus, and even before that, I was at SRI International when Fred Moll was negotiating the Intuitive uh, licensing of the Intuitive technology. And I met Fred at that time. And then at Conceptus, Fred and I tried to work together um, at some point, even uh, because he was interested in obviously minimally invasive approaches. So starting from that end, I've known um, uh, and have uh, been involved in one way or another with Intuitive. A couple of times, we tried to do some projects together much later, even with my orthopedic company. So we've had an opportunity to get to know the management team, to get to know the company, and as you know, it's, a, it's an amazing ride. Intuitive uh, has accomplished something that very few medical technology companies have accomplished in bringing such a, 
a really radical technology to market and, and establishing it. And um, the management has just uh, been uh, something of, that I've always admired. And a couple of years, uh, probably, yeah, it was about a couple of years ago, Gary and I were talking and he mentioned the fact that he's been thinking of the, the need for Intuitive to think beyond the typical product lifecycle for one of their platforms. And the idea of creating a, a, a group that is focused on uh, bringing new technologies to the market that are outside of this three to five year cycle. And he asked if I would be interested in that. And it sounded just too too, too much uh, fun <laughs> and too exciting to miss. That's great. So I came on board about 18 months ago to run this group. And Oliver, tell us uh, how you found your way to, uh, to work with Julian in, in Intuitive. How'd you, how did you get into the med tech industry? Yeah, so uh, my, my journey started uh, a long time ago back in Scotland. Uh, so I, I, I bring the kind of clinical and then investing experience uh, to, to Intuitive and our, our new platform that we'll, we'll talk a bit more about. Uh, but I, I started off as an MD in the UK, spent some time in the world of surgical innovation um, in, at Imperial College, working across policy, tech transfer, early stage you know, uh, medical devices, before making the leap into to venture capital. And I, I moved over to the US and to the Bay Area four years ago to join GE Ventures and join the investing team uh, as part of uh, you know, investing across healthcare, IT, life sciences, tools, and, and, and med tech. And over the last couple of years, got to know the intuitive team and hear their exciting ambitions around this new group that, that Julian's leading and the ambitions to stand up a venture capital platform that would be uh, accelerating the future of, of minimally invasive care and the chance to, to join that group and help, you know, build, build the structure and set that strategy was, uh, you know, like Julian, too, too, too good to, to miss. So um, we've been working on that over the last year or so and, uh, and recently launched. Excellent. Well, we heard a bit about the origins of the effort Intuitive Ventures. Uh, let's, let's start getting into, into the size and strategy. So it's a hundred million dollars. Uh, how long, how many, over how many years do you expect to invest that money? And, and can you tell us a little bit about how it's structured and what sort of vehicle? Is this a, a, an account, an evergreen fund, a separate fund? Uh, what is it? What does this venture effort look like? Yeah. So, you know, first and foremost, we're, we're structured as a fund. You know, we've, we've created, uh, you know, a, a financial focus to the investing that we plan to do. So think of us as a hundred million dollar fund, you know, 10 year charter, deploying that capital into a portfolio of early stage companies that we will support from uh, that initial investment through follow-ons through to you know, ultimate and uh, pioneering of markets. And, and really the focus is both financial returns and aligning and, and, and backing future leaders of, of digital tools, precision diagnostics, focal therapeutics, medical devices uh, that, are, that are driving positive outcomes. And in, in minimally invasive care, uh, so yeah, that's that's our structure. So, what types of uh, products do you see this this capital going into, or what types of companies developing the products? Are should we see it simply as a company that's developing a device that might go on the tip of a robotic arm, or or is your charter much broader than that? It sounds like it is. Yeah, much much broader. So we we see the the the, the future minimally invasive care through our venture lens is really across the continuum from you know, the early detection of disease through that therapeutic journey and ultimately follow-up and recovery and rehabilitation. And so what we're backing through our venture fund is, is leaders across that spectrum. And so, 
you know, we're looking for independent initiatives, great teams, great technologies, tackling, you know, big market opportunities in those buckets I described. Um, so, so not necessarily things that will be tied to intuitive and, you know, we're, we're, we're mandated to, um, you know, deploy capital first and foremost, not to, to tie companies to intuitive. So we, we really do see these as first and foremost independent initiatives, but where we can bring value from intuitive to, to help accelerate their efforts. Julian, speak to the, the strategic need or the strategic goal. Uh, is Intuitive using this vehicle and I imagine other efforts to, to really move away from we sell you a robotic surgical system? Do they want to be providing much more than that? Are they already providing much more than that? Maybe I'm missing part of the story. Where, uh, where are we going next with this vehicle and, and other efforts that you're leading? Yeah, just to kind of put a little perspective on that. So uh, when I came on board, the group that uh, we have now is, um, and internally we call it the Future Forward Group. Mm -hmm. uh, it has three pillars. One is the intuitive ventures that uh, Oliver was describing. The other one is the intuitive business development function. And this is a, a business development function that's existed for some time. It can uh, basically be involved in looking at new opportunities um, for intuitive, uh, whether it's a licensing a technology, acquiring companies, or partnering uh, with companies. And then the third arm is the intuitive research. And this is a broad applied research group that is, the way I think about it, it looks for research opportunities or technologies that are kind of around the corner that are not obvious that we will need, but could be potentially important to us. And we can seed some additional research, both outside with academic institutions or internally to explore those ideas and see if they make sense. So as a whole, we kind of, our role is really to, to keep an eye on some of the developments that could be of importance to intuitive over time and then build and um, organize them in a way that we can take advantage of them. So Intuitive Ventures, as Oliver mentioned, uh, we have uh, a financial goal, obviously, but we also have a strategic perspective of, uh, if you think of uh, what is close to Intuitive today in terms of uh, adjacent markets, adjacent technologies, uh, the venture lens can give us uh, a broader view so we can stretch ourselves into some of the new digital tools that are coming in uh, in our in the pipeline, and they're going to be impacting uh, healthcare. Some of the focal therapies that also are connected to earlier uh, and more precise diagnostics that's occurring. That's di diagnostic cancer earlier, for example. So, um, so that's the lens that the venture, the intuitive ventures, opens for us. Wow, I wouldn't place either of those areas as a, an adjacent market. Really, it seems like it's a really you're kind of creating a new footprint in a different area. Well, if you if you think of um, you know what's happening today in in healthcare as a whole, the sort of the the swim lines that one can have associated, for example, with open surgical procedures or robotically uh, assisted surgical procedures, those swim lanes are becoming very porous just because of so much technology is coming in. So the digital is probably the most obvious mm -hmm. one when you can think about the impact of uh, machine learning image processing is having and identifying, for example, tissue planes during surgery, providing some guidance to the surgeons in terms of conducting the surgery. Those are adjacent technologies that were not obviously associated with this maybe four or five years ago, 
but are certainly now becoming more important. Is the connection therapeutic and clinical only, or is there sort of an effort to diversify business-wise as well, to get away from being a, a large cap seller primarily and to really get into more of maybe a business where you can sell a lot of smaller things repeatedly? Um, yeah, I think it's more of a strategic, a broadly speaking, strategic. What we want to focus on is really, the, uh, as a whole, is the minimally invasive procedures. It's really, we want to advance, mm -hmm. as Oliver said, and accelerate the future of minimally invasive care. And in that context, we think about the patient uh, journey and, um, and what we always refer to as the quad aim. You know, how can these procedures improve patient outcome? Um, help surgeons or physicians to conduct their procedures better, improve cost, and make the whole environment better. So within that context, we can be looking for new opportunities. Well, Oliver, on, the, on a minimally invasive side, and, and, and Julian, you as well, I mean, are we looking at, uh, I'm hearing a lot more of it over the past couple of months, and it may just be the people I'm talking to, but is there a renewed push either because fewer people want to get into hospitals or there is a, a rise of a, ASCs where we're, there's a higher and higher demand for new minimally invasive tools, or are we merely just seeing sort of an extension of the trend line that we've been seeing all these years? So, so I, I think kind of broad, yeah, meta trends, we are seeing a shift in, in procedures that can be um, kind of downstaged into lower acuity settings of care. I think we're seeing technologies enabling that and, and new business models. Certainly an area of, of interest on the venture side where we're looking at those independent you know, initiatives and startups that are driving technologies that might unlock those types of of, uh, of 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 value proposition. So no, I I I think it's 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 a trend, and, and we're keeping an eye on it. And you know, it expands to everything, including uh, monitoring of patients, and you know, interesting business models and tools that are driving wearables and sensors at home, and uh, you know, trying to driving patients through lower cost settings of care. And Oliver, have you made any investments from the venture fund yet? We just. Announced our investment in Kila Health, the first of our portfolio in the digital health space. And uh, this is a startup company, a, a spin out of Duke University, that's driving um, kind of surgical decision making and supporting that perioperative management of patients, really unlocking the, the power of data to, um, to support better outcomes. And it's the first of what will be many uh, across the themes we're looking at. We've got a, a kind of rich pipeline and, and really looking for, for new and exciting leaders across, across the different spaces to, uh, to keep investing in. And again, what, what size of investment are you looking to make? What stage of company are you looking to invest in? And what sort of access and connection do they get to Intuitive? Are you uh, introducing them to people inside or, or are you really, is there a Chinese wall between you and, and what goes on in the, in the parent company? Yeah, absolutely. So a, a fundamental pillar of the platform is adding value to our portfolio. So leveraging our our customer connections, our regulatory expertise, our reimbursement um, kind of reach, and you know providing access to tools and resources to to help on on those fronts. That that's a core pillar. Um, we we do have a you know a, a Chinese wall as you say between you know information sharing and and the like and you know what I see my responsibility our responsibility on the venture side is to best provide the connectivity to the decision makers to the key stakeholders for our portfolio companies so they have the opportunity to collaborate with Intuitive and you know find paths to partnership where it makes sense and so that that's an active part of our of our mandate. And in, and in terms of the, the stage, really, we're, we're looking at supporting a range of early stage companies, think some seed, Series A, Series B onwards, 
given the, the breadth of themes we're looking at, we are looking across a, a broad spectrum, very comfortable, you know, backing great teams early and supporting them along their journey. And it aligns well with Intuitive's entrepreneurial spirit. And Julian, I know you folks need to go. I just uh, wanted to uh, flesh out the, the final, two, the other two pillars, uh, the business development pillars and the research. I'm just curious, how have those materialized? Have you have you collaborated with companies outside of Intuitive through the BD pillar, or are you funding efforts outside of Intuitive with the research pillar, or are those both internal internal operations? Yeah, it's a good question. On, on the business development side, we do get involved with other companies quite a bit, um, and the involvement could uh, could be could take several forms. One is, for example, we can be licensing technology if they have a technology that could be of uh, relevance to our current businesses. We also can uh, do some co-development efforts with the companies, and we involve a number of those for example. And most of the work that uh, the business development team is doing is related to our current platforms. But we also look for opportunities that could be, um, you know, reaching beyond the current platforms, if uh, they can be, um, you know, if they align with our strategic focus. On the research side, um, this is an er uh, an effort intuitive, as you can imagine, historically, it's been always very much of a research engineering company. So there's always been an active research function at the company. Um, and, um, and it has been involved in, for example, seeding the development that has led to the intuitive SP system, you know, the single portal system to uh, the newest system, which is the ION. Um, so a lot of the work from uh, the research teams have uh, led to these developments. So there's always been an action. What um, what I think uh, has been uh, is is a little different now is that that group is under the uh, this future forward umbrella, and what that does in a sense is allows us to engage with outside organizations in many different ways. So we have, uh, and that's what's unique about the group, and that is we can make inventory investment as Oliver described. We can become more business um, and strategically oriented with them, or we can uh, fund some research projects with the with an outside team. And we are uh, traditionally intuitive has been has had very close relationships to the academic institutions where uh, advanced research goes on. So all of those are options for us to bring new ideas and new technologies uh, to intuitive. Right. And just the final quick question. I'm just curious. It's, these, these plans obviously have been in the works for, for a time, but I'm wondering if uh, the impact of COVID has accelerated things, changed the trajectory of things at all, uh, just to sort of kind of underlining the point that diversification is, is essential. Uh, well, it's and I'll answer and then Oliver should answer because he's been very much uh, thinking about that from a venture standpoint. But broadly speaking, I think, um, you, you know, this type of situations like COVID kind of brings to the front what is important um, in, um, you know, in, in our industry. So it, in some ways it has accelerated um, certainly migration towards digital technologies, remote um, remote communication, remote um assistance. These are areas that uh, we see uh, opportunities where uh, maybe um, before COVID, it would have taken longer to start focusing in that area, but certainly now they, they're clearly more important to us. And Oliver, maybe you can explain, uh, also kind of comment on your thoughts. 
you know, COVID hasn't impacted our, our launch um, of the Intuitive Ventures platform, but, uh, you know, has brought under sharp focus the challenges of delivering care under, um, you know, resource constraints. And we, as Julian says, we see huge opportunity and adoption in digital and medtech and a lot of startups uh, coming out and a lot of investment um, in these areas. And so, you know, we're, we're excited about being in the market and, and being a, a thoughtful partner to those trying to drive better outcomes in minimally invasive care. Great, great thoughts. And uh, really looking forward to, uh, to tracking your progress and, and keeping in touch. So thank you both for, uh, for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate it. All right, well, it was great to hear from the folks at Intuitive. Uh, lots of interesting stuff happening there. We'll certainly keep an ear on that. Now is the time when we uh, plead for social media connection because we're, we're just so lonely. Sean Hooley, why don't you beg first for LinkedIn connections? I will beg for LinkedIn connections, and I always do. You know me too well. You can find me on LinkedIn uh, at Sean, S-E-A-N, and then W-H-O-O-L-E-Y. Hooley is my last name. Similarly, on Twitter, it is Sean Hooley, WTWH. So uh, yeah, feel free to follow, connect, do whatever. And uh, there's a there's a very high chance I accept. Almost 100%, I'm guaranteed. Chris Newmarker, how can folks find you on the social media channels? Always link with me on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, just like a new marker, always happy to connect too. And I'm on uh, Twitter as well, at Newmarker. So like, always, always get to, to network more and find out about what's going on. Absolutely. And I ain't too proud to beg myself. You can find me on LinkedIn at Tom Salemi and on Twitter at MedTechTom. As mentioned up top, uh, we're going to be uh, taking nominations for uh, sort of the year's newsmakers. We've got a, a survey we'd be happy to send out to folks. We'll be posting that on, on social media, looking for the the person, the company, the product, and the event that have made the most news in uh, 2020. Uh, we will accept nominations now and then uh, try to uh, take a final, I'm going to use the V word here, folks, t- final vote that will be uh, tallied quickly and efficiently. And uh, we'll have those folks uh, on the podcast. That's a wrap, folks. Thanks for t- tuning in. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Please do share this podcast on those aforementioned social media channels. Please give us a ranking. That actually does help people find it. And most importantly, just tell your friends and your colleagues that, that we're doing this. We'd love to have more people listening. And of course, tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the device talks weekly podcast waiting for you stay safe stay sane talk again soon